So imagine in this year's, um, in which will be crazy presidential election, that there is a secret write-in candidate who is sure to win, and his name is Jesus Christ. Imagine if Jesus Christ became president of the United States. Imagine if he then decided, you know what, I'm not going to stop there. I'm going to take over the Kremlin. I'm going to take over Beijing. I'm going to take over every other place that there is, every significant place. I am going to rule it. And if that were true, it would be awesome. Think of what he'd do. Think of the reforms he would enact. Think of the changes he would make. Think of the things that he would never put up with. It'd be awesome. But it would not turn out remotely close to what he is going to do. It wouldn't be remotely. It wouldn't be a, a, a fraction of a millionth of a percent of what the quality, the beauty, the magnificence, and the blessing of the kingdom of heaven that will be here on earth. He is not going to reform the kingdoms of the world. He's going to destroy them, and he's going to build new, just like he did with people. So we're going to look at that. We're going to turn, go to our third temptation. I want you to first, or us, to start in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and then we'll go to Matthew, and we'll see how Satan offers Jesus the kingdoms of the world. Let's start with prayer and be grateful and thankful and prepare ourselves for God's word if it's necessary to uh, change your heart to concentration and to uh, reverence and humility to God, ready to hear his word, ready to focus. With that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for another day of grace and mercy. Thank you that every day your grace is new every morning, as Jeremiah wrote so long ago. We thank you, Father, that you have loved us before the foundation of the world, and so you've given us your Son as our Savior. And all that comes with him, it's uh, amazingly not just him. It's him and his kingdom and his life and his righteousness, his laws, his husbandry, everything that he is to us. We're so grateful, Father. He has made you our Father. And through that miracle, we have the Holy Spirit within so that when we look at your word, we can see the truth of it, the life of it. And uh, with that, Father, we're just so, again, grateful. May we always be so. And uh, guide us, Father, in this important passage today. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, as we know, we're in a we live in a system. The the world lives in a system and always has since the beginning. Um, you know, and the first city was built by Cain's son. And you know, as we read, and it, there's a lot not there for us to under, to to really look into in the opening chapters of Genesis after the fall. But um, we, we see a man bragging about being a murderer. And, and then it's not long as we read. And then God has to flood the earth because man has become so wicked, so evil. 
We uh, continue to live in a system built by mankind. Um, that system is, uh, we've often heard it to be called the cosmic system. That's a great label for it because the word, the Greek word for world is cosmos and where we get you know, cosmic from. And so the cosmos has a system and that system is set up to offer something to everybody. Everybody born into this system is offered something, a piece of it. Some think they can rule the whole of it. The system is set up to offer wealth, position, and power in the kingdom. Whatever you can grab, whatever will be offered to you. It's not fair. Who gets what? That's for sure. But it's offered, and people desire it. The system of the kingdoms of this world are set up to educate us, to inculcate us with lies, generally. And it's always, it's for the most part been this way. In our day and age, it's the worst it's ever been. Our education system here in America and in Europe is a tragedy. Uh, and there are lies about personal fulfillment, happiness, satisfaction, what's going to make you happy and fulfilled and satisfied, all in the kingdom. The system is set up to promise everyone a future and a peace and a utopia. Someone's always talking about how we're going to find our way to some utopia. And the system today in the West has become something that generations in the past would have laughed at. Now, in our current day, the system has become, I'm a, man, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. And you're supposed to take that person serious. <laughs> and... It's become mainstream. Jacques Rousseau, Karl Marx, Sigmund Freud, Charles Darwin. All four of these people have had a huge influence on the 20th and 21st century. In Rousseau's philosophy was the fact that mankind was at his best when he was all alone. Before we had societies. Rousseau imagined that we were all wandering around in the woods, all individual. I don't know how we reproduced, but he imagined it. And that we were free when we were alone, and society has corrupted us. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, you know, but funny enough, Rousseau knew that, you know, you, you need to get together. You need societies. So what's the solution? And his solution was the state. The state, everybody will be free and the state will take care of all the things for us. Brilliant. Yeah, you can see why it has had such influence, though. It's still a huge influence over the thoughts of people because you get to be a tyrant and say, look, I'm going to take care of you all and you'll all be free. Marx, Karl Marx, that God was in matter. That there was no God. That matter, material, was God. And so what we needed was economic reform. And therefore he dreamed up communism. That worked out well. Freud was that the problem is our sexual release. And therefore our, our freedom, our fulfillment was found in our ability to fulfill ourselves sexually. And you can see how they're all tied together. Marx said we were fulfilled when we satisfy ourselves economically. Rousseau said we're fulfilled when we satisfy ourselves individually. Freud, sexually. Darwin, when we, have, when we discover our inner strength. 
And in every one of these men, the solution was found within, and God was left out. And all four together have, if you blend them all together, there's a, there's a man, uh, he's a, I think he's a Catholic theologian. His name is Carl Truman, who wrote a book called The Modern Self. Something, I think it's something like that. The Modern Self or The, the Birth of the modern, modern Man. And he shows how all four of them have been blended together to make what you see now as the, the norm. That what it is possible that we can achieve some kind of fulfillment. Well, it's obvious that Satan is allowed to exploit his power. As temporary as it is, Satan is allowed to exploit it. And in all the ways that he does, he always hurts mankind. So look at 2 Corinthians 4.3. And even if our gospel is veiled, Paul writes, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, the exact image of God as a human. Notice that word glory. It's the glory of Christ. Satan's going to show Jesus the kingdoms of the world and their glory. What is the glory of the kingdoms of the world compared to? And this is a great question for all of us to answer. What is the glory of the kingdoms of the world versus the glory of Christ? The glory of the gospel. And the gospel is the good news. Remember that euangelon, that word, the Greek word gospel means good news. It's the good news of the cross, but it's also the good news of the kingdom of heaven has come. That's what John said. Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, you know, this, the kingdom, the Savior, the eternity, uh, all that, the brand new heaven and new earth, the new creation, all of it, our faith, uh, the word of God, all of it is a part of the good news that God has given this to mankind. And so we find that we have, each of us, even as believers, and as believers, every believer in the church age is a member of the kingdom of God forever. <clears throat> we still have the choice between the kingdoms of the world and the kingdom of heaven. We find ourselves often getting pulled to the kingdoms of the world, drawn to them, to its wealth, to its promises, uh, to its fear. And the, the news cycle for the next, uh, when's the election? November. For the next nine months is going to try and scare everybody into picking their candidate. You know, it's going to be awful. And then Portland will be no more. <laughs> I, I really fear for Portland. But anyway, uh, Satan is the ruler of this world. Notice how many passages. John 12:31, John 14:30, John 16:11, 2 Corinthians 4:4, 4, 4, that's the one we just read. Ephesians 2:2 2, 2, where he's the prince of the power of the air. Ephesians 6:11 and 12 uh, where we see his schemes. 1 John 5:19, Revelation 12:9 through 17 where he wars with Michael the archangel in the atmosphere. The god of this world or the ruler of this world and he attempts, this ruler of the world, attempts to offer the kingdoms of, God, uh, kingdoms of the world, sorry, to Jesus 
if, and this is the most amazing request that you would ever read, I think, in the scriptures, if you'll bow down and worship me. And, uh, you know, we could spend a class on that in why does the creature want to be worshipped? You know, why, why, you know, Satan could, if Satan can get Jesus to do this, of course he can't, but hypothetically, if Satan can get Jesus to do this without worshipping him, he's accomplished much, but he can't get past that. That you, if I'm going to give you rulership of this world, you've got to bow down and worship me. He can't let go of that. Many people can't either. So look at Matthew 4 8. Let's read it. Matthew 4 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, notice in this third temptation, he doesn't say, if you are the son of God, nor does he command him. But now, he says, uh, and he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. All the kingdoms of the world and their glory. If you fall down and worship me, I will give them to you. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, hupage satana. I love the Greek. The Greek word sounds so much better. Instead of just go, he says, hupage. And that's the command for depart. So Satan commanded him the first two times. Turn the stones into bread. That was an imperative. Uh, jump, throw yourself down, that was an imperative. Now Jesus says, in an imperative, go, depart. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus says nothing about the kingdoms of the world. He doesn't have to. Jesus says nothing about how ridiculous it would be for him to bow down and worship Satan. He doesn't have to. Because there's only one to worship. And if that is the case, and it is, then no one who worships the Lord God would want the kingdoms of the world because they do not adhere to him. They want the kingdom of heaven for sure, but not the kingdoms of the world. The kingdoms of the world do not adhere, do not worship. They never did. Not once has a kingdom ever worshipped the Lord God, even God's very own kingdom that he established with Israel. So, uh, amazingly enough here, Satan attempts to rule the world. I would say, you know, is it, uh, again, uh, conjecturing here, that if Satan thinks that, well, if I can get the Son of God to rule the world and then he worships me, I get to stay here on earth forever and I never get judged or I don't know. It's hard to imagine what Satan thinks he knows or what he knows or anything. And I, I don't care what he does anyway. But the, the ridiculous uh, proposal here is that Satan wants to rule the world with the Son of God as his lieutenant. And that is ridiculous. But... Human beings can be just as ridiculous. We often make God our lieutenant, don't we? When we test him, that was the prior uh, temptation. You know, we, we want God to do what we want him to do. We're not going to submit to his will. We want him to submit to our will. 
You know, we think that we know what's what, and we're going to tell God what to do. And so we say, God, you must. And then when he doesn't, we get angry at him. In a way, we're making God our servant, and, and God is gracious with us and patient with us, and he's teaching us. And hence these trials of various kinds, as James says, which it's going to teach us obedience, that there is no other way. There is no other way but to obey God in everything, even when I am completely baffled about what in the world is going on in my life or what this situation is or what this person is or who this person is, that I have to submit to the will of God no matter what. So now, if Jesus took this offer, he'd be accepting the role of rehabbing the world, wouldn't he? I mean, if he did take the kingship, of course he's never going to. But I'm thinking hypothetically. He's going to, all right, you know, it's kind of like, let's make a deal here, right? That's our younger generation doesn't even know what that show is. But, you know, what's behind door number one? Well, there it is, the kingdoms of the world. What they look like crap, right? I mean, they're horrible. Uh, Yeah, but you're the son of God. You can, you know... Put a little polish on it, clean it up, right? Uh, drain the swamp. If anybody, he's the only one who could ever do it. He would do it. He'd drain the swamp. There'd be a lot of crying people leaving Washington D.C., losing their jobs, <laughs> and we'd be all cheering, yeah, waving our little Jesus flags. And again, it would be nothing compared to what he's going to make here. And notice what this teaches us. As we've got our eyes glued to our computers or our TV sets, hoping for our outcome, hoping for this and that. And it's nothing wrong with wanting your country to prosper. There's nothing wrong with that, to being a patriot. But if our happiness hinges on it, how many Christians, let's say that that they really do rig the election and Trump loses, how many Christians are going to go berserk? There's going to be a lot. And is that what the Lord Jesus Christ would do? He wouldn't remotely. If our happiness depends upon it, then we don't really know what kingdom we're members of. And we have to. And I think this test really teaches us that. The kingdoms of the world in all their glory which is their wealth, position, everything, everything that it offers is nothing compared to what we have in Christ Jesus. And that's why you could be poor as a church mouse and be the happiest person in the world. Because you have the Lord and you know it. It makes you the richest person alive. Go to John 12. John 12, 30. Oh, man, we can't do 30. So I like reading from my Bible now, so now I can look in context. <clears throat> so in verse 27, let's start there. Jesus now is days away from the cross. 
trying to time that Passion Week out of the Gospels is impossible. But this is probably about two days to three days before the cross. And he knows it. And he says in verse 27, Now my soul has become troubled. That Greek word for troubled means true agitation within. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. This is a prayer. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. Quote from the Father, I have both glorified it it, and I will glorify it again. What an awesome thing. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it thundered. Others were saying an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sake. In other words, I knew, I know, I didn't need to hear that. That's actually a wonderful backup to the second temptation. I didn't need to throw myself off the temple to know that my father would catch me or that my father will protect and provide me my whole life. And I didn't really need to hear that voice either. That was for your sakes. And then he says in verse 31, now judgment is on this world. Notice the context. Judgment is on this world by him being judged first. Because all who believe in him will not be judged. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Does Satan have a future? No. Well, yeah. But it's in the lake of fire. Look at 1430. It's in the upper room. John 1430. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. Now, who's coming? Right now, we know from the gospel account that the ones who are coming is Judas is coming, and he's coming with the temple guards and some temple uh, police and, and probably Pharisees and Sadducees that are with them, scribes or whoever, came in that whole crowd, and probably a few Roman soldiers, I would say, in the mix. And they all came to arrest him, and he said, he calls that process, that's the ruler of this world, fighting against me. He says, but he has nothing in me. No corruption is in me. And then he says this interesting in verse 31, but so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. See that? That gets us right back to these tests. I'm not going to make stones into bread. I'm not going to throw myself off the temple. I'm not going to take the kingdoms of the world because none of these things have my Father commanded me. He behaves completely human. And we can do the same. That's what's so wonderful about this. And believe me, at times this is going to get very hard for you and for me. That is the greatest time in your life when it's so hard to obey him. And you do it. I mean, it's not so great when you don't obey him. But you, when it's so hard to obey him and you do, by faith you obey, it is, you make huge strides in your spiritual life. And you get few. You don't, those opportunities don't happen every day. That's why we've got to be ready for them. And when they do come, we've got to take full advantage I say this to myself as much as I say it to anyone. But those times are going to come. And if I turn my back and I say, I'm going to take the easy way out here. I'm not going to do my Father's will. And it may be that no one even knows what you're thinking. 
No one even sees it. If you don't go forward in that, you're going to miss a huge opportunity, and you might not get that opportunity again for a long time. All that time between that opportunity and the next one, you could have been a much more mature believer in between. But because you turned your back on a very hard test, you went through the the time after that. Actually, not as near as mature as you could have been. Not as strong. And hence, these trials that we face, the harder they are, the more important they are. And he, he's at the hardest point of his life. We just saw in chapter 12, he said, I'm agitated. I'm troubled. It has gotten very hard for him. But he obeys. So, Satan also has a throne somewhere. He's the god of this world. This is in Pergamum, in Revelation 2.13. Uh, Jesus says to this church, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And uh, no commentator or expositor. I love passages like this because when you get to read about them, there's uh, there's a hundred different theories. Uh, the main theories are that there was a temple to Zeus in this city. And there was also a cult to Caesar in this city, uh, a very prominent cult that worshipped the emperor. But who knows? Is his throne still there? I don't know and I don't care. This is somewhere in western Turkey. Sounds about right. (laughs) Just kidding if you're from western Turkey. But, uh, you know, wherever it is. But it shows us that Satan has a kingship, a system, an organization And for a time, he is allowed to oppose God, oppose God's work in human history. Our opening passage in 2 Corinthians 4.4 was that he snatches that gospel out of people's hearts. He blinds them. In the parable of the sower, he's the bird that takes the seeds. He's allowed to do it. Everybody born into this world is going to be exposed to it. Nobody escapes it. Nobody. So this is what um, Donald Barnhouse has a book. I calls it The Invisible War. For years we called it The Angelic Conflict. If you're from either Theme or McLaughlin, we called it The Angelic Conflict. I don't, personally, I don't like Angelic Conflict as much as Invisible War because there's more involved here than angels. But, um, but it, it, whatever you call it, you call it the war. You know, it's, it's, it's on. And it is throughout human history. It explains a lot. You know, why is there suffering in a world that God created? People have grappled with this question for forever. And the war is that God has allowed the devil, fallen angels, fallen mankind, to sin in evil, and for a time. um, As one person put it, I read, and I'll probably get this wrong, I just read it quick, that Uh, human history is the expression of God's grace in eternity or something like that. Like somewhat human history is on this, uh, I'm saying a timeline of eternity. Here I go, you know, you can't, your head splits trying to think about it because eternity isn't a timeline, but whatever. Human history pops up and then it's gone. Throughout human history though, as we see from Revelation to Genesis, I said it backwards. Well, you could read it backwards if you want. Revelation to Genesis or Genesis to Revelation. 
that uh, you know God has been ultimately gracious, continually gracious, offering from the beginning all through patience, grace, mercy, love to mankind, exemplified in His Son. Now this has baffled many. The the great uh, the theologian. And I think he was a great theologian, Augustine. Uh, I was told again that everybody at Corbin tells tells you, all the professors say you can't call him Augustine. And so for that reason, I call him Augustine. He gets them unnerved. I, I, you know, whatever. But uh, St. Augustine, you know, Augustine of Hippo, who's the, he's really the one of the preeminent church fathers. It completely baffled him why there was sin in the world. And rightly so. I mean... How can a holy, sovereign, all-powerful God allow this to happen? And we don't really have an answer for that. What we can know is that he has. And allowed is the best word we can use, I think. God has allowed it. Called the permissive will of God. You know, God has allowed it. But you know, the, the reality is there's, there's something probably much better than the word allowed. And, and it's something that we can't possibly understand. As Isaiah writes in Isaiah 55, as God says through Isaiah, that as high as the heavens are from the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. You do not know. We can't understand. But we know it to be true. And in this war, every person has choices. And those choices are important. So important, in fact, that they, they determine the eternal destiny of that person. This is no joke. The fact that the kingdoms of the world stand in conflict to the kingdom of God, that Satan stands in opposition against God, that lies stand in opposition to the gospel and the truth. And <clears throat> but there's, I say decisions because for believers as well, our decisions now, uh, and we'll close with the passage that we know well, that we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And the context of that passage really speaks to this. That I don't live for this world. And what if I do? Can a Christian live for the world, for the earth? Of course they can. We see that people do it in the Bible who are believers. And the consequences of that are you know, eternal rewards. And we should know that. because. But when it comes to the ultimate decision, is one decision for or against Christ. In this conflict, God reveals himself. And um, he has revealed himself over and over. Continues to to this day. God is revealing himself in many varied ways. He reveals himself in the scripture. He also reveals himself in the church. In Matthew 5.13, he tells us that you are the light of the world. Let your light shine. He's using us to reveal himself to the world. That is one of our commissions. And yet, the problems persist, and if man were left alone without Satan and the conflict and all of that, it would be a pretty bad place. But this conflict exacerbates the sins of mankind because Satan is active as God allows him to do what he does. So look at Romans 5. Romans 5... Uh, such a beautiful passage about 
the fact that we're born in Adam, and being born in Adam doomed us, but the last Adam, who is Christ, delivered us. Right, so starting in verse 12, it, it starts there, Therefore, just as through one man, who is Adam, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. You see, death there means, that if nothing's done, we're eternally doomed. Until the, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. Notice that, free gift. But if you skip down to verse 20, God then talks about the law coming in, or Paul does. And the law came in that the transgression would increase. And that we just assume that where more laws were put upon mankind, that we were just giving more things to break. But also it put pressure on us, as Paul writes in Romans 7. He says, it wasn't until I heard do not covet that I really started wanting to covet. And so the law eggs us on to sin. So why do I have this in this part of our lesson? We want to see how when good comes in conflict with evil, sin increases. Because the law is good. The law is right from God. Taught to Moses on Sinai, told to Moses on Sinai, given through God, given through angels. It's right from heaven. The, the scripture says it's holy. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. It's not evil. The law is good. But when you bring good into conflict with that which is evil, then sin increases because evil fights back. So the conflict makes it worse. Satan makes things worse. He's very real. As we saw in our, for one of our first slides, he is the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air. Prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We see in the book of Daniel that some of his angels battle against the God's angels. We see in the book of Daniel also that some of his angels were running countries like Persia and Greece, that there were we assume them to be demons or fallen angels who were actually influencing major nations back then. You know, they're doing it now. Pulling strings, doing what they're doing, trying to do whatever they're trying to do. I mean, oppose God, oppose the truth, trying to destroy man. And God has allowed it to happen. So every person has a choice. Since we're in Romans, we've got to read it. Go back to Romans 3, 21. It's one of the most significant but nows in the whole scripture. Romans 3, 21. But now, the before the but now is the, um, the ruin of mankind, the condemnation of mankind because of his sin. But now, from, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What a significant passage. Don't take it for granted either. Don't say, ah, salvation passage, I know those. Don't do it. Don't fall into that trap. Just read them again and again. It's just marvelous, you know, that God through Christ has delivered all who are caught up in this conflict. As I said, and you know, the kingdoms of the world, every one of them are going to be judged and destroyed, but God is going to snatch out of those kingdoms the saved. You know, which it leads us to the significance of like the rapture, as we saw in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're caught up. He brings us, he raises us up. He gets us out of here. If we're part of that generation, but all who have believed are in essence, the same thing, you know, snatched up or saved, delivered. And yet, while we're here, if we're starting to get our eyes on the kingdoms or freaked out by the kingdoms or anxious about the kingdoms or whatever's going on, remember, this is not your home. So our choice in the kingdom is two, kingdoms of the world or kingdom of heaven. For those of us who are believers, like we just read in Romans 3, we're a part of his kingdom forever. Yet we can still be taunted or tempted by the world. It's one of our great three enemies, the flesh, the world, and the devil. The kingdoms of the world, like it is offered to Jesus, as we read, can be grasped now. Right? And so here's another one of the, the issues that cause us to be... Um, uh, failing, if you will, or cause us to be getting anxious about things. And, and that is, you know, uh, all of us, it's our favorite thing to do. Be patient and wait. You know, it's not our favorite thing to do. It's, it's one of the hardest things to do. And I got to wait. Wait until it's my turn. <laughs> I laugh because, you know, I'm, I'm Maggie's uh, six and I'm you know, in the process of training her. We, well, we have been in the process of training her to be patient, teach a six-year-old to be patient. Right? We're inherently not. Right? Little kids, if you're on the phone and they got a need, they come right up to you and yell in your eyes. I'm on the phone. Can you, you know, no, I need it now. You're in the bathroom with the door closed, they just push it open. That just happened to me the other day. I'm like, get the knock. Wait. <laughs> I know you need the bathroom. Get the wait. How are we at waiting? Well, the, the Lord has to even wait. His ministry has just begun in Matthew 4. Just started. And he's not going to grab kingdoms now. He's going to wait for the right kingdom. And the Lord knows the promises, so do you. Like Psalm 2. 
The rulers of this world rebel. Psalm 2 is the Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are the opening, they're the introduction of the whole psalm, the whole Psalter. They rebel, they say, Oh, we don't we're gonna not obey God. And then it says that God from heaven laughs at them. And then God says, I am gonna install my king, my son, as my king on Zion. Jesus has been reading that psalm for decades, and he knows it's him. Right? So how is this even a temptation? Well, maybe it's not. Maybe Jesus just laughs this one off like it's, not, it's nothing. But, you know, for what is promised him that he reads in the psalms about himself, when he reads Daniel chapter 7, you imagine being a young Jesus reading Daniel 7 and saying, that's me right there? That's me on that page. The son of man who is given an eternal kingdom that will never end. That the ancient of days who is God the father gives it to him. And in Daniel 7, there's an empty throne right next to the father in which the son of man rises up on the clouds of the air and takes that throne for an eternal kingdom. In that very same chapter, it says that the fourth beast will be destroyed And he knows who the fourth beast is. The Antichrist. Jesus knows all this. He's reading Daniel 7 for decades, knowing it's him. And here he's offered a kingdom now. Well, let's see Hebrews 11. Kind of fun. Now that I'm using my Bible to look up passages rather than my computer, and I like it better. I like holding it. But when you use a computer, you just type in H E or H E and pop pops right up. And now I have to be like, is Hebrews before James or after James? Eh. Trials and tribulations of your pastor. Okay, Hebrews eleven one. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's the head of this whole beautiful chapter about all these heroes in the Old Testament who had this faith. Things not seen. He is Abel, he does Enoch, and then he gets to Abraham. Look at verse 9. Hebrews 11.9, by faith, Abraham, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, which is the Abrahamic covenant. For he was looking for the city who has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. How wonderful. And Jesus knows this too. Although the book of Hebrews isn't written yet when he's being tempted, but he knows the principle that Abraham roamed in tents, that Abraham was promised the city, that Abraham did not see the fulfillment of the promise made to him. He didn't live to see it, but he will see it. And what what did Abraham have to do? Wait 
knowing that his kingdom, his city, his house was not here. These bodies we're in are called tents as well. The house you live in, it's a tent. It's temporary. Everything here is temporary. Other than our relationship with God. It says in Hebrews 9 that the Holy of Holies is up in heaven too. That's also not made with hands. So why kingdoms? You know, he shows them the kingdoms of the world. Why doesn't he show them like the banks of the world? I don't know. It's important to understand that mankind wants to live in a society. Even Rousseau, I mentioned Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who said that man was at his best, his philosophy, was that man was at his best when he was all by himself alone and not in society. He's living out there naked in the woods. Even he had to figure out how man comes together in a society. He called it the state, but... Why does man have to come into a society? And yet, in our sinful natures, we long to run off and, not, and be alone. Somebody mentioned the other day that I was looking into something. He mentioned the fact that you can't stare into someone's face for too long because then, you know, if we are like stare at each other, we get kind of, we get uncomfortable, even with the person that's closest to you. And it's because of our sin natures. Our face is where we identify ourselves and identify others. And we, we look, you know, you can't look at people for too long. You always avert your eyes. Silly. Why do we get together, though? Even though, as fallen creatures, we long to crawl under a rock some t- a lot of the time and be alone. And it's because we're made in the image of God. And it, this is something about the image of God that we can often overlook, which is the Trinity the Trinity is odd, is it not? The Trinity, like the uh, Muslims say we're polytheists because we have three gods. We don't have three gods. We have one God. But he's three in person. And that means that God is a society. Though he is one. He is one and he's three. And so we have, from the beginning, even in our fallen state, have made kingdoms. You see it right away in, in Genesis chapter, chapter 4 and chapter 5. The kingdoms are built. The Tower of Babel. You know, if, the, if God didn't confuse the languages at the Tower of Babel, there'd be one kingdom. Imagine if there were one kingdom with one government, which will come again in the future. <clears throat> so mankind gets together, makes kingdoms, makes societies, And over and over those societies fail, fail, fail. The last kingdom is Babylon in Revelations 17 and 18. And it's a complete flop. It's the worst, the worst one of them all. And the Antichrist gains control over the whole world. Like I said, there would be one world, one government over the world, and it's a complete failure. From a distance, cities look nice. They look clean. They look like somewhere you want to go. New York City, that's Central Park. Uh, You want to walk through Central Park? Maybe not. How about at night? (laughs) No, no thank you. 
See, from a distance, it's beautiful, but you get down deep in there into the alleyways and the byways and the streets, and there's all kinds of problems, economic, social, political, crime, menace, sickness, sorrow, poverty, death, all through the cities. You know, like um, writers from the, I think, I think of Dickens, you know, Dickens often writes, he was very, Dickens was very influenced by the poor in London during the Industrial Revolution, and he writes about them. You can almost feel how dirty the place is and how sickly. <clears throat> so our application to us before we go, don't try to make the kingdom of heaven in this world. Don't build the foundation of your happiness here. Like your happiness is in your stuff. It's not. It's not actually, it's not even in people. Although we must understand that we long to be in relationship. Not good for the man to be alone. Not good for the woman to be alone. We long to be in relationship. But relationships are often hard. As we know. But we long for them. It's a part of you. It'll never go. Because you're made in God's image. And God is a trinity. He's a united trinity. But even though it's not in people, of course, we know this, if, if I make you make me happy, then I am more your torturer than I am your friend. <clears throat> Don't make the kingdom of heaven in this world. It'll never be here. The foundation, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the foundation is Christ. Jesus Christ, Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 3.10. And then he said, build on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones. Think of the prayer, that the Lord's Prayer. Now, we're going to get into the Sermon on the Mount here coming up. I might start it on Sunday, actually, maybe. But uh, the center of it is the Lord's Prayer. The Sermon on the Mount falls into a chiastic structure where there's, there's a structure to it. And in that prayer, your kingdom come. Right? That's right after, right after this. This is no mistake by Matthew to set it up like this. That your kingdom come, not this kingdom. Now, think of that prayer now in light of what we talked about today. I look at the kingdoms of the world. I don't want them. Even if I'm, you know, say you're offered that. There you go. It's all yours. You're the king of New York. Uh, I don't think so. It was a good movie called Kings of New York, wasn't there? You know, we're all killing each other and stabbing each other. But, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I don't want that. Yeah, thanks, Keith. Thanks for ruining it for everybody. Um, well, that's DiCaprio's in that one, isn't it? Anyway, it's a good movie. But, chaotic. It's always been this way. You know, I, I think of, um, you know, you wouldn't want to go down there now but that think that movie takes place in like early 1900s or something like that, maybe late 1800s. And if if that's the way things were, and they were, you wouldn't want to go down there then either. Like we think people were nicer back then. We're watching this show about the the West, uh, people coming west in the 1800s. You know, like Oregon Trail and stuff like that. You know how many people died on the Oregon Trail just trying to get out of here? How many people? 
Most actually, most of the deaths were by wagon accidents. So, you know, God killed the dummies so they wouldn't get out here. So no, I don't know. It looks like a lot of them made it though. I don't know. But it's you know, the old, new mankind hasn't changed. What is the bloodiest century in all of history? Twentieth, yeah. This twenty first just started, so we'll get data on that when it's over. If it lasts that long, it'll be bloodier than the last. The reason why is not because people are more immoral or evil in this century than they were in past centuries. It's just that people have bought into worldviews that are just ridiculous. But anyway, you will never make earth your eternal home. It made me think of a gravestone. That's not your eternal home. Right? You will never make earth your eternal home. You can go with me if you want. I'm going to go to second. I'm just going to read it real quick. Second Corinthians five. The tent, right? That's a beautiful wrap up. Here's our application. I'm on. Jesus offered the kingdoms of the world. No, thank you. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down. That's a very poetic way of saying you died. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That's what we're looking for. For indeed in this house we groan, that's so true, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we having put it on will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan being burdened because we don't want to be unclothed, but clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us his spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. We walk by faith and not by sight. See how beautiful the application is. He showed him the kingdoms of the world. I can see them. Give me New York again here. I see it. I don't want it. Because I walk by faith and not by sight. We're of good courage, I say. Prefer rather to be absent from the body and be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we have as our ambition, whether to be whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. That's walking by faith. I want to please my father. That's all. And then he says, and then how you do this, what we just read, how you throw your life into that is going to be judged. Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And then he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. Uh, we're going to see uh, Jesus when he quotes Deuteronomy again in this third temptation. He actually changes it. He's the Lord. He can change the scripture if he wants. But he changes fear, the word fear, to worship. In Deuteronomy, it's fear. He says, you shall worship the Lord your God only. In Deuteronomy, it's you fear the Lord your God. And so what Jesus is telling us, that the fear of the Lord is worship of the Lord. So anyway, I didn't mean to throw that extra in. Our earthly body, our earthly homes, these earthly cities, 
They're all tents. They're all going to be torn down. There is nothing there in them for us. But you know what is in them for us? The souls that live in them. Right? There's people who live in New York City who need saving. Those, that's what we're after. Not the stuff, the souls, the people. We're the light of the world. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for all that you do for us through your grace. Thank you for your word that shows us such wonderful things so that we may know that we are saved, that we know that we're of your kingdom and that the kingdoms of the world have therefore have no allure to us other than to save. We know that you save them, Father, but through us, through the gospel, that we may witness to and be lights to the world for you to save them. We thank you, Father, for such a calling. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.